With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Missing More Murray podcast. I'm Tim here with Lance. How's it going tonight? It's going pretty well. How are you, Tim? Doing great. Tonight we have a blogger on who has just dipped her toe into the blogging realm. Her name is Erin Larkin. She goes by Gorilla Ontologist on her blog, the107degree.com. And the link is in the show notes. And she's got an interesting perspective on this case. What do you think, Lance? Erin had been in contact with us for uh, for a little while before she started her own blog, and it was something that, um, as you'll hear in the interview, something that she decided to do kind of uh, kind of in, in spite of the case. Like she had to do it because of her connection with uh, UMass, her age, um, and just the uh, the the way she breaks down the case just seemed to make a little bit more sense to to get it out there. Uh, and what she has to say is really interesting. Um, and she brings uh, she brings a, a certain amount of logic to the case that we really like. Yes, very interesting interview, and we will roll it in just a moment. But first, we want to say thank you very much to Blue Apron for sponsoring this episode. So check out blueapron.com slash missing for your first three meals free with free shipping. And also want to introduce a new sponsor, Casper Mattress. Pretty great company. We will be talking a little bit more in depth about these two later, but check out casper.com slash missing. Okay, thank you for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at Maura Murray Doc, and we hope you enjoyed the interview. Deborah Larkin, welcome to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. First question I have for you is, why did you start this blog? At first, when I started to get into the case, I wasted so much time on things like the $4,000 and went down so many rabbit holes and realized that there was so much misinformation out there or things that had been focused on that didn't really or potentially didn't matter for the case at all. So I thought it might be valuable to to clear some of that up 
and try to focus on the things that that mattered rather than the personalities and the people that the characters if you want to call them that i think it's weird to call them that but the more personal stuff that i I just thought was not relevant yeah we just recently had a guest on who um is working really hard to clear up all that white noise as he calls it so it's good to have that out there yeah i like the way he put that i think that's exactly right so why you what insight do you have to add to this case um trying to think of a, a good way to put this i think that there was some there was a gender component that might have been a little bit missing and i felt like i was close enough to the case to that people could understand why i was interested but not so close that i have necessarily have a dog in the fight and i think that some of the other people that you've spoken with have been dismissed. And some of the ones that you haven't spoken with, like James Conrad, was just automatically dismissed his, whatever he said, because he is perceived to have some sort of ulterior motive. And, um, and I think even John Smith and several of the others, like there's always like, they're always dismissed because of some ulterior motive. So I thought I might be a person that could, um, I don't have any motive. I don't have any, any or anything that could be dismissed as as such. Now, tell us why you have um, a partial connection to the case. Okay, so I was at UMass in 2004, and I ran track um, in cross country 2003-2004 that year. Um, I knew Kate. She was my big sister on the on the team. Big sister would be like a like a mentor. Yeah, yeah. And that's Kate Markopoulos we're talking about. Right. Right. So, I mean, I also worked the same job as Maura at UMass Security. And, um, you know, obviously from the same part of the world, Irish Catholic family. Okay. Now, I know people are listening and they're they're probably talking to their devices and saying, how well did she know Maura? Did you know Maura? And if you did, how well did you know her? No. I mean, I knew of her and I I knew that she existed. I'd seen her around and I mean, I'd heard her talked about, but... I, I would not say that I knew her or I was friends with her. I was a freshman, did, and I, she was a junior. I know Kate was a senior. Didn't you run track with her? Uh, she was injured that that fall season, so she didn't go to practice or anything. Um, and then she was supposed to come back that first week of February, and she didn't. What was the nature of the injury? I heard it was her knee, but I I'm not positive about that. I don't know exactly what the what the injury was. How was the talk about her? Um, you said that people are people were saying, "Oh, she's coming back soon," or you know, she'll she'll be joining the team at some point. Were they optimistic about that because she was a, a special runner? No, I think it was more the talk that I heard was between Kate and uh, Julie, our coach, and um, it was just they were trying to figure out, or Julie more so was trying to figure out when Mora planned to come back if she planned to come back. So Julie is the coach, not to be confused with Julie Mora's sister. Correct. Correct. Okay. Did you ever have a conversation with Mora? Mm, no, not that I would remember at least. What happened that week? I remember, I mean, I sort of remember like flashes, uh, at least as it pertains to like the case. And I remember, um, I remember Kate's face as she was talking to to our coach and explaining uh, what she knew, which was basically nothing. Um, 
I think it was a Wednesday that um, that the coach had, was just like asking her where what had happened and what happened the weekend before and um, and what the situation was and she was just it seemed like she had a hard time explaining because she really had no idea she seemed really surprised at what was happening and sort of overwhelmed um, but didn't seem didn't seem that she was lying or holding anything back at all to me. Did she have any conversations directly with you about it? Uh, no, I I was there and overheard. I was sort of like I had been injured that week, and so I was just in the um, in the coach's office and in the the varsity gym while while they were discussing everything. And so I was present, but I was not. I had nothing to contribute. I didn't add anything to the conversation. I was just there. How do you recall the moment so well? Well, a couple of reasons. I had just come back from that part of the world. I, I'd been skiing in Bretton Woods and Warva Valley the the weekend before with my family, and they were still there. And um, I decided to come back for practice and for, for classes. And I drove back the opposite route that she had taken on that Sunday night. And um, the next morning was was really the first official day of spring track uh, that Monday. And it was a morning practice, and it was absolutely freezing and really awful, <laughs> not very fun at all. And um, I I got injured from – it was actually an injury that I had gotten the day before skiing, but it just got a lot worse that day, and it ended up that I was done competitively running in college after that. Something that's out there that there's a lot of uh, speculating about is the state of Moore's room and whether or not it was vacation time and how things were, were packed. And um, just to get rid of the white noise about that, can you tell us what who, what when was vacation and when did people come back and 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 uh, if that's if that the state of her room is accurate to your knowledge or if that struck you as odd? I mean, it didn't strike me as odd, I, I, but she also, like, there was no indication to me that she had packed everything up because the way that UMass works is during the winter breaks, every, the whole university, like, all the dorms except for one, I think, like, an international dorm is completely locked up for cleaning. So you turn your keys in, the RA, like, examines your room, makes sure you don't have anything, like, candles burning or something crazy like that during break and um you turn your key in you basically take everything home with you that you are would be concerned about anyone going through because you know that people are going to be walking in there throughout the the break and then you move back into the dorms essentially at the start of the semester and so i know we've heard that she had a single dorm but there as far as i no, there weren't really single dorms. There were there were more than enough dorms than there were people. So some people ended up with a single dorm, and it was based on seniority. So as a 
as a junior, she would have had pretty high seniority, except that she had come in midway. So she would have been like just on the verge of had somebody needed like emergency um, housing at the beginning of the semester or, or something like that. Um, she could have ended up with a roommate. So it, it sort of, it makes sense to me that she wouldn't necessarily have unpacked everything yet until the, the end of ad drop, at least. And I mean, I think, I know that there's been some talk that like she had the boxes packed on her bed, but there were two beds in those dorms. Every dorm had two beds. So, so that I sort of dismissed that. Because she would have slept in one bed and the other bed yeah. would have had the boxes on it. And so you think she may not have ever unpacked? Yeah, I, I'm. I think it's very unlikely, uh, very likely that she just never, never got around to unpacking. I mean, for all we know, she, maybe she didn't necessarily want to live on campus. <laughs> maybe she was looking for off-campus housing. You just, you'd never know until the end of ad job period when everything is sort of finalized. So as we're talking about the dorms, this brings up another area of, uh, or this brings up another topic. That, that generates a lot of speculation about this party that happened the night that she had the accident with her uh, with her father's car. Um, there's there's rumors that it was this party, and no one you know people can't believe that members of the of the, of the party aren't accounted for or remembered. Um, some people say it was a really small party because you you know you couldn't have a party. Uh, that large and in a dorm so small and you know how can you forget people's faces at a party um you were there during that time can you just kind of tell us a little bit about that culture and you know our parties and i know i know that colleges have parties and it's it's common but what was it like there i mean umass especially that section of the university the university sort of broken up into five different sections in southwest where um, Kate and Mara had lived was definitely known to be the more social party sort of atmosphere. But at the same time, the dorms were like really small. They were like, I, I think I, I want to say 10 by 10. I, I'm not sure if that's accurate, but they were, they were very tiny. And um, like, basically you could fit two beds, two desks, two dressers and a half a closet or something. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. And, that, and that was it. So, um, but yeah, people would gather together <laughs> every night of the week. So I, I, I don't, I sort of think that the term party might be a little bit, could be perhaps misleading or make it seem more like bigger than it, it may have been. Were you at the party? No, no, I was, I was in New Hampshire. Did you know Sarah Alfieri? Uh, no. Did you ever hear Kate talk about her? Mm, no, I don't think so. Or I wouldn't, I don't recall if she ever did. Tell us a little bit about this, the job that you had. Um, it being the same as Mora's is, is pretty interesting. Is there anything in the story that we all know so far uh, that you think is different than what the common knowledge is? Well, I know that there was some question about what time it ended, uh, the, the shifts would end. And I know that I think UMass had some sort of flyer, something in writing saying that during the week, it, the shifts went till midnight. And then on the weekends, they went till 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. But I know for a fact, I remember that 
Thursday was included in what UMass considers a weekend. So, um, and Sunday was not. So Sunday, they only went till midnight and Thursday, they, I, I want to say it was 2 a.m., which means you'd start packing up your stuff to leave at 1.30 a.m. So she was, I do believe, and I understand why people question it and I wouldn't necessarily take my word for it either. I wish there was a, another way that maybe I can track down a pay receipt or something, something that, that shows this and clearly, but, um, but she definitely would have been working until 2 a.m. that night or 1.30 at the very least um, on, on February 6th. So the other thing is it would have been really hard to, to leave during the shift because you have to have somebody watch the desk at all times. Like you had breaks, but they weren't, it's not like you went out and went out to, to get some, some like fast food or anything. You, you could go to the vending machine. You didn't leave the building. Like you just, you just didn't. So, um, so it, it seems to me very unlikely that she would have left during, during her shift. Not impossible, but certainly unlikely. Who would the people be that would see someone leave during a shift like that? I mean, she could have see that, like, see them leaving a building, or yeah, because you said uh, when you said you 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 couldn't leave, just made me think that there was, you know, somebody that she would have to pass by, like a manager or a supervisor. Just seems like kind of physically tough to to leave without being seen. She could she could have, like snuck out the back or something like that, but um, but there. The supervisors, like Karen, would they'd be making the rounds. They call them rounds. So they, they'd come around to every dorm, um, somewhere between like 45 and 70 minutes or so, like once. And they'd stop and they'd sign in and, um, and make sure everything was okay, see if you needed a break or anything like that because everyone had, someone had to be watching the desk at all times. So there were at least like three or four supervisors walking around at all times. And Mara leaving or not leaving is relevant because of uh, Patrice Vassy was hit that night. And of course, uh, we've talked about it at length on this podcast. And if you've looked into the case online, you've undoubtedly seen the connection that people theorize that Mora might have hit Patrice Vassy. Uh, and then that was the reason she took off to New Hampshire, sort of in a, an emotional spiral. Um, so you're saying that you think that's extremely unlikely. I do. Yeah. And not, not impossible, but it seems very, very unlikely to me. So your notes and your uh, looking into the dispatch and the call logs for the night of the accident are are really detailed. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about about that and how you uh, approach that? I thought that the what John had said at some point on one of the podcasts about the the seven seven p.m. timeline was really interesting because I do remember that all the media reports had focused on had originally said this. Seven, she had crashed like just after seven. And then the two witnesses that said that they heard that scanner call um, that a female had went off the road near Swiftwater Road, <clears throat> but it wasn't in the log anywhere. So I, I tried to sort of go through the, the other town logs for that night and see 
if there was anything that sort of resembled what that call could have been. And, and I found one that seemed um, to stand out for a couple of reasons. And that was call number four, four, seven, five, four. Um, the first thing was that the, the time between when the call was, um, was logged and when police were toned out to the scene was 64 minutes, which didn't really seem to make any sense to me, um, because it was a, a level two out of three, um, prioritization, which would suggest that it was more, um, you should have gotten more attention than, than seems to have. Uh, but then the other thing was the the narrative said says that there is no PI, uh, but they need the fire department and the wrecker. But then it goes on to say that the the subject was requesting an ambulance. PI being person injured, right? Person injured, right? But then after all that, no fire or EMS was ever dispatched. So, to me, I, I sort of had to wonder if if the, this might have been the 7 p.m. call. Because we know that there were three missing calls between, um, I think, 6.30 and 8.30 or somewhere in that range. Right around the time of the crash, there's three missing calls. Each two, which is Cecil Smith from out of Haverhill, is at the scene. So Groton is where, where this call took place, is about an hour from Haverhill. And during the entire time that this call had taken place... He was supposedly at Morris scene. So at least in the logs, he was in two places at once and an hour apart from each other. Okay, so just so I understand, there was a call for the 7 p.m. accident that you're talking about mm -hmm. in a town that's about an hour away from Morris' accident. Correct. The 7 p.m. call has Cecil Smith being in Groton at that, at that uh, scene. Yes, and, and sorry, let me let me say this. It, it, in the log, it states that it was at seven forty nine. It doesn't say that it's at seven. I just I, I think that this could potentially be the seven o'clock call, um, the narrative from the seven o'clock call that's missing from the logs. I see. And what what does it say at seven forty nine? So at seven forty nine was the the four seven five four call in Groton, which was the also a motor vehicle incident. That was called in by radio. And this one has H2 there? Yes. It takes place from 749 to 8 or 904. And um, that, like, with that whole time, he was supposedly in Haverhill at Morris scene, which is at now like seven, at 730. Right, right. Because he was there from 746 to, I think, 926. Okay. So, um, so that sandwiched in in between Moore's uh time frame which was 746 to 926 is this this call in Groton which is 749 to 904 so there it's, it seems to me impossible for him to have been in two places at once this might be a dumb question why would a Haverhill police officer be in Groton anyway that I cannot answer I have no idea but you're you're sure that H2 is not H2 from Groton? I don't think so. I so I um I looked into like how the the police and New Hampshire in particular codes all of their coding system essentially for for the for the radio. 
And I, I think each town sort of has their own shorthand. So I know Franconia is K, Haverhill is H. Um, I don't know much about the other ones, but I know I, I sort of highly doubt that they would have this overlap in, in that system because the whole point is to like distinguish them and not not confuse the system or sure. not confuse the situation. Sure. So if if there's a Groton police officer there, it would probably be G, right? Right. Exactly. In fact, I think it is G. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. But what we do have is H2 at the scene of Mora's accident. Correct. And H2 at the scene of a Groton accident. Right. At the same time. Right. So, yeah, there's there's this gap, like literally a space in the, in the log that John was given that he had posted. And um, the gap in time was from, I think, like four, four, five, fifty-seven or so until until Moore's accident. If I'm, unless I'm I could be wrong about that. But essentially, the, the hour and a half or two hours before um, her accident in the Haverhill log was missing. And there was a, like a chunk of white space. And so if that had been the 7 p.m. call that the witnesses heard, um, it would have made sense for it to be for it to be there. It seems to match up with sort of exactly what they they were saying. And um, and Cecil Smith was was there. So that would you expect he would have been at that call as well. Well, the one other thing I want to say about this one is the next call that Cecil Smith was dispatched to was um was on Lime Kiln Road and he he cleared Morrisine at 9:26 and was dispatched to this uh the intersection of Lime Kiln Road and Route 25 which was a 20 minute drive and in the logs at least he arrived at 9:35 so it took him 9 minutes to get to a scene that should have taken 20 minutes so there's something there's something weird about the time there again so at the very least we're talking about incredibly sloppy dispatch bookkeeping. Yeah, and I don't know how normal that is, but I don't think it, it's doesn't seem seem to sort of like subvert the entire reason that you have these logs. I mean, the, the purpose seems to be for precision, right? And so, or, I mean, don't do it if you're not gonna, you know, don't have code and don't don't do it like with the 24 hour uh, timestamp that they have on it. I mean, if you're not going to be accurate, but it does sound like they have a fantastic like time warp up there where you can make a journey in half the time that it should take you. Nine minutes to go about a 20 minute drive. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. It seems, it seems sort of impossible to me. So there, there's something definitely weird happening with the times, I think. But yeah. The other thing was there are a couple of calls that stood out and, um, the first one, it was actually um, one that I had noticed where an officer was had didn't respond, and that that's in the Franconi log. Uh, at, later on in in the evening, it, it was said something to the effect of, um, and I can try to find it. I'll pull it up. But um, the the officer was off in the area of the motel and didn't respond. And so that sort of it may be curious about. <laughs> what that could have been, because we know that Mara was looking for a, a hotel. So then I looked for other instances where um, this officer was in the log and found two more. The first was a 
something it didn't really make sense to me at all all it said was s s1 or sl16 was inquiring about the phone number and i sort of dismissed that because i couldn't figure out what it meant and then it it started to to bother me so i eventually figured out that sl in the the new hampshire uh frequency coding system means state liquor license and 16 would be the um the the 16th entity what license number 16 essentially um because new hampshire has that weird uh alcohol regulation regulatory system that i don't really understand but it's run i think out of the state police so then i looked up what sl16 was and it was butson's um butson's liquors which was one of the places that perhaps Mora was seen at before she got into the accident. Right. I, I know that um, I've heard at least that the family take took that seriously, that sighting seriously. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure that it's been confirmed, but um, or if there was any video or anything, but I know that there was a lot of talk about it. But I did think it was interesting regardless um, why why this officer who was not Haverhill or Woodsville officer would have been inquiring about that number at that particular time. So perhaps it suggested that he was in the area um, at least at 7.08 p.m. um, and looking for that number. Then I I was looking more into the log um, around the time when trying to figure out what, what was holding up Butch Atwood's call mm-hmm. from going through, and the the call just before, the, or the major call just before Morris was um, that that suicide attempt around I think it was at nine seven or seven seventeen rather, and um, they they dispatched a bunch of officers and EMS fire everything to the scene because it was a level one emergency, and this particular officer had been dispatched at at 7:21 and then en route I'm sorry dispatched at 7:20 en route at 7:21 and then before he arrived for some reason he cleared cleared the scene he never arrived he just something came up apparently and he he cleared out at 7:28 cleared the suicide call right right okay. he never arrived at it though so between the time that he was dispatched and and began the journey to the to um to that incident, he something happened. Like that that's all that we can sort of logically conclude that would cause him to clear out of that scene, and and not arrive, um, never arrive. But there's no there's no indication that he was he went anywhere else. So it. The, the next time he's in the logs isn't until several hours later. I wonder if that's a common practice for police officers to clear a scene if they get another call that's uh, a higher priority, and if fire and 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 ambulance has it under control. I wonder if that's a common practice. I mean, we don't have an answer for it right now, but maybe someone out there can shoot us a message and just say, you know, whether or not it's common for somebody, the responding officer, to be on their way and fire and EMT tells you know tells him if you have a you know if he has a higher priority call you can clear it yeah yeah that's definitely possible but i i've looked 
sort of where he could have been going, and there's there's nothing saying that he was dispatched anywhere else or he didn't radio in about another incident or um, okay, that's, that's... he doesn't show up anywhere. So I mean, maybe he was just he just took his you know his break for the evening, so <laughs> got dinner, but exactly. it seemed like an odd time to to do that during a suicide call. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, to to start off en route to one and then just, you know, decide mm, they got this. I guess I don't <laughs> I don't have to have to get there. So at the very least, we're just talking about a lazy police officer who might have got a call from fire and EMT saying we have the situation under control. And he says, great, I'll clear it. And then he just goes and does something else like sets a speed trap or something because there's nothing in there to indicate that he was called to a more important or a higher priority yeah from everything i know about this particular officer he doesn't seem like the lazy type right if he's got a call he's gonna see it i mean look at that it's a small town we're not talking new york city here it's not a thousand things going on all at once if he's got a call he's chances are he's gonna go to (laughs) that current call clear it when he gets there so aaron you recently sent us a piece of information that uh more research that you've done in regards to the 001 and witness a's account so assuming that i i sort of have the her route Correct. Like she, she saw zero zero one around the cottage hospital, and then continued on, and then saw saw the same car again around Goose Lane. Um, then that that sort of that time frame would match up sort of perfectly <laughs> if um, if someone had been near this around Swiftwater um, at that presumed uh, seven p.m. call. Uh, accident, gotten dispatched to up in to up in Littleton, and had been on their way. But it, it's about an eight or nine minute drive from the Cottage Hospital to to Goose Lane. Uh, so had it been the the same officer that was dispatched at seven twenty and cleared the scene at seven twenty eight, it would have made sense that he was on his way east with his blue lights on possibly. And I'm, I'm not sure if this is, is possible because I don't really understand police radio frequencies that, that well, but if he had heard the call that came in from faith Westman at 727, known that he was in the area and decided that maybe, maybe it was more urgent for him to go to that. It would have made sense for him to, to sort of double back around and, have passed witness A again, taking a right onto to Route 112, and then um, arrived at Morris scene. Still aligned with witness A's account that she saw the same vehicle pass her twice. Yes. Yeah. If if she had left around seven fifteen, seven twenty, from from where where she worked, past the cottage hospital, at seven around seven twenty one. And seeing that officer who, with his blue lights on heading east, 
and then got into the goose lane at 728 or around since about a nine minute drive. And he, if he had, if it was the same officer that I'm referring to, um, he cleared out of that one scene that he had been going to and decided instead that there was something more urgent right around the corner then um, it would make perfect sense that he would have perhaps passed her again around 7, 7, 20, 28, 29, 30. Um, yep. The timing works out perfectly. So you're saying the officer who was responding to the suicide call who cleared that could be 001. Could be 001. Uh, and he... And this particular officer, at least I found, I know in 2007 he had been Franconia 001. And then recently I found things suggesting that in 2003 he would also have been driving the SUV. It was the, it's the next town over from Haverhill, just east, like a couple miles north northeast of, um, of where the accident is. So you're saying you believe there's a chance that this officer McKay was the driver that witness A saw and not Jeff Williams? I think it's possible, yes. So that's not so convoluted as as originally thought. Based on the police dispatch logs, the timing works out where Officer McKay could be on his way to the suicide, gets the call for something that is pretty much right around the corner from him at the time, clears a suicide because other officers and fire and EMT had it under control, so he clears the scene on his part and proceeds on to Moore's accident in 001, passing witness A twice. Mm -hmm. Timing works out based on those logs. Just about perfectly. And, I mean, I think the the part about him inquiring about Butson's, uh, whether or not it had anything to do with Mora. It yes. was it was right in that area, right around at seven oh eight. I mean that that's when he called called in to, to get that number. Um wasn't his town. It isn't his town. So to me it, it seems like there was something going on that required his attention at in that particular area. So all those things together, um, sort of make me make me wonder if, if it was his uh SUV and not, not Haverhill. Zero zero one. Wow. Okay. Also, um, I remember Fred Murray saying um, that a couple of witnesses told him that they had heard officers arguing about jurisdiction in the area or at the scene that night. Yeah, at a hotel. Yeah. um, And it sort of makes sense that the next town (laughs) town over is Franconia. So I, I can't really think of any other who else would be arguing about jurisdiction other than the state police, the state police, Franconia police and Haverhill. Those are the only three options really. And perhaps the federal, (laughs) some federal entity, but that seems unlikely. So those three are really the possibilities that we have. Aaron, you have a really interesting take on the red liquid that was found at the scene of the accident. Uh, can you give us, uh, give us a little insight into that, into your, uh, your thoughts on that? Sure. So it sort of stemmed from the, the hunch that 
I, I actually don't think that Mora was drinking and driving. And I know that, that that's not very popular of a theory, but at the same time, it just seems to me like the only evidence that we have of that is the crash that she had gotten into two days earlier that potentially, um, we know that she was drinking some quantity of alcohol that day, but um, but she was not she wasn't given a ticket or cited for for drunk driving. Um, so she couldn't have been been too bad. And that that's really the only evidence we have that she had a problem with alcohol. And at the sa same time, like there's a to me that there, there's a huge difference between driving a few miles on a familiar road home after a party on a Saturday night and literally drinking and driving hundreds of miles away on unfamiliar roads. It just it, it made no sense. It it was sort of a huge extreme difference that you were tr that people tried to say that one the first implied the second, and I just I didn't buy it at all. And just looking at the the other items in her car, there was one one thing called a lumiseal, which the only reason that you have that is if your coolant's leaking, and it, it repairs repairs problems with the, the heater core and the radiator. And so if she had had a, a heater core, a problem with the heater core, then the first thing that would happen would, your, your coolant would start to leak. But also, um, one of the other symptoms is that coolant actually leaks through the floor, floorboards into the dashboard and into, into the cabin of a car because the heater core is like just, just sort of um, behind the dashboard. And um, if the airbags had gone off, that might explain the the red liquid on the ceiling, because all GM cars at the end of 1996, every single one used the type of coolant that's that's red. It's ethylene glycol. So it more than likely her car had required the red type of coolant, and. Um, and we have pretty pretty good evidence. I mean, there's there's no other reason that she would have a lumiseal unless there was a coolant leak at some point. And, and so, uh, so it seems possible that the the red liquid, both underneath the vehicle and on the ceiling, was was coolant. Especially given the fact that it, it's hard for me to to buy that she was trying to hide the Coke bottle under the car when she left an entire box of Franzi wine in plain sight behind the driver's seat. I mean, it states really, really clearly in the, in the log that it was in plain sight. It does, but it doesn't state that it was open, which you'd think that if it had been, it would have been the only unambiguous like instance of that we can point to, to say this was absolutely a crime. Because right. it's illegal to have open container. Like it makes no sense. Why wouldn't you put it in the trunk where it's actually legal to carry an open container? Why mm -hmm. not carry it with her or throw it over the snowbank? Anything, but leave it in plain sight when you are trying going to great lengths to hide this Coke bottle. <laughs> it makes it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, and the other thing is the the head gasket that I know I think Fred's mentioned it. The, the car was running on three cylinders, and I think what he meant was the head gasket was blown. Um, there's actually one of the ways that you can sort of trap the excess exhaust when that happens is with a Coke bottle. You put a Coke bottle under in 
side the hood of the car um, as like a uh, an extra exhaust tank, sort of an overflow tank, and and you put coolant in it. How do you know that? My dad was big into GMs, and uh, my brothers are mechanics, so I, I know some stuff, like enough to know sort of what to look into and what's what would be normal and what wouldn't be. It would have been sort of weird for her to, I don't even know how she would know how to how to create that hookup, but uh, but it's possible that someone she knew tried, like, just, you know, made a makeshift overflow exhaust tank in, in her, um, under the under the hood. More than likely, it was coolant that she made from antifreeze and water and kept kept with her in the car along with a Lumiseal and a radiator funnel because coolant had leaked <laughs> at right. some point in history in history like it would have been sort of reckless to to not bring coolant along on that that trip if she knew that there were issues and that plays into the red liquid found beside the car because if sniffed by an officer it would smell like alcohol is that is that correct yeah well ethylene glycol is i mean it's it's comprised of it's like one you know one atom or whatever off of being ethyl alcohol, which is drinking alcohol. But who knows, like, what it had been mixed with. I mean, if she had had the problems that Fred said she had, then there could have been oil, like, she could. It, who knows what was in it? It could have been, there could have been a Lumiseal in it. Like, the way that the can of a Lumiseal, the way that you, the way that it works is you mix it with antifreeze, and or coolant, rather, and put it in right into the radiator. So... Oh, which brings me to the rag. <laughs> I think the rag very likely could have been that the engine was hot and she didn't want to burn herself. So when she unscrewed the uh, the radiator cap, mm-hmm. she used a rag. <laughs> That's it. And it probably, uh, just not to get, you know, coolant all over the place and not to burn herself. And then why did she stick it up the tailpipe? I mean, I can think of two reasons. The first, which is silly, but something that I would probably do, is um, I wouldn't want to get coolant all over my stuff in the trunk if I had clothes back there or anything. And I, if no one was going to be driving the car, I might just, and I'm not wanting to throw it away, I just might put it in the tailpipe. <laughs> the other the other reason, she could have also been trying to hide smoke, uh, like Fred said, of course, but I do think that's possible. But... Um, the other reason, if she was really in a rush and she had already locked the car and the, the rag was out, then maybe it was just, you know, instead of throwing it on the ground, she just put it in the tailpipe because she didn't want to get, get out her keys and unlock the car and all that stuff. So maybe it, maybe that's it. I just, I, I don't, I don't think that it was anything more than that because it, we know that it came from her trunk. So there's only certain um, number of things that could have happened for that to for it to wind up in the tailpipe. I just don't think it it was it was anything nefarious. Interesting insight from Aaron. What'd you think, Lance? What's really refreshing about this interview is the point of view that we get from Aaron. I didn't consider that the red liquid might be um, coolant or 
radiator fluid or something other than alcohol. It's funny when you have the perception out there that there's a box of wine in the car and there's a Diet Coke bottle and it has an alcoholic smell to it. So you put it together and no one, you know, it's just one of those things that no one can prove, but it just gets out there and just starts becoming a fact. So it's very refreshing to get the uh, the alternative point of view and just a, a fresh eyes, a logical pair of fresh eyes. And we hope you enjoyed it and we will be back with more Missing Mara Murray soon. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.